Good morning. We're glad you're here. Um, just real quick before we get started, just want to uh, say a, a special thanks to my bride. It's been 12 years today that she uh, started to put up with me. Uh, I guess 16 years ago she started to put up with me and I finally convinced her to marry me four years later. And so uh, just a special thanks to her and all that she means to me and my family. And uh, it's just been a unique gift from God. Uh, and he shaped us to be who we are today through each other. And I just want to say thanks, babe. So let's get started this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 24, and so if you want to go ahead and turn there. And while you're turning there, I'm thinking of the word waiting. And as we think of this word waiting, it means many different things. And there's many different uses behind it when we think of it in the English language. And so real quick, I want to give you that definition as we move forward into this new year and we think about as we've been anticipating the coming of Christ as we are waiting for the return of Christ the second coming the definition of waiting says stay where one is or delay action until a particular time or until someone something happens to stay where one is or delay action until someone arrives or is ready remain in readiness for some purpose be left until a later time before being dealt with. It is used to indicate that one is eagerly or impatient to do something or for something to happen. It's an act of a waiter or waitress serving food or drink. And so these are many examples that we know of when we think of the word waiting. And one example in my own life, when I think about the birth of my children... We were waiting for hating and anticipating the first coming of our child. And it only took like 20 hours, I think, 20 beautiful hours that my wife so enjoyed. Uh, but after 20 hours of waiting, the anticipation, the excitement, and the arrival of our son, our first son, Hayden, in the C-section room, I'm, I'm being super dad. I got the camera and we're ready. And in that joy, in that excitement of waiting, my son comes out, and he seems to be lifeless. He wasn't breathing. He was purple. And immediately, it, it just went away. And that anticipation, that excitement, that waiting turned into a waiting for him to breathe again. And in my heart, it felt like forever. It felt like the 20 hours. But it was mere seconds. It was just mere seconds until they had him over at the table, and the nurses are calling out different terms, and then you hear that cry. And so you have that excitement. And so that waiting looked different than the waiting of my second son. So the same thing, we're going into C-section. This time we scheduled it, so it was like 15 minutes. I know Melissa was happy about that. It wasn't long, but in that waiting, that wasn't the excitement as much as it was the nervousness of what could happen. And so there was a bit of excitement, but in that moment when, when Jake was arriving... There was fear. There was anxiety. What's going to happen? And he came out and he was crying. And so then immediately the excitement shifted or the waiting shifted to excitement. And so the anticipation of having our second child was great. But in that, we had to move him to the NICU because he was unable to breathe. He was unable to breathe fully. He had to wait for his lungs to develop. And so he was in the NICU 
for time, I don't know, two or three days, but once again, it felt like eternity. It's like, when will we get to hold him? You know, we keep going to the NICU to see him, and he's on these little machines and all these things. And so the waiting looks different. It looks different in many of our lives, and there's many examples of waiting that we can think of. And so this season, I think about kids waiting upon Christmas, right? I think of the kids that are anticipating that morning when they can run in and see their gifts. They can't sleep at night. They're thinking eight hours of sleep is like eternity. And I think of the parents, and we're like, I can't wait to go to sleep, right? It can't come early enough. (laughs) And all the time that we've put in to prepare for that morning, as soon as we close our eyes, it seems like the sun is coming through the blinds, or there's a little finger tapping on your nose. (laughs) and saying, Dad, it's time to get up. And we're like, just five more minutes, son, can you wait? And so waiting looks different. I think about young couples in love as they wait for the sunset. I think of the chemo patient as they wait for the nausea to pass. I think of the first grandchild as the grandparents wait. I think of, for the Christian, for the believers, I think of the waiting, the anticipating of the coming of our King, of our Savior, and what that looks like. And so this season, as we've walked through these four truths leading up to now, as we've walked through four truths that we looked at in Advent with peace, love, joy, and hope, as we've walked through that, and we've built a foundation for us to wait for the Lord, just like the great men of faith before us waited for the Lord. They anticipated His coming because they knew that their lives were built upon the hope and the peace and the joy and love that Christ would bring and that He did bring. And so in their waiting, what did it look like? What did it look like for these men? And what does it look like for us today? I believe that we, that Christ is our hope, that He is our joy, that He is our love. And that the circumstances of this life will not determine our faith, but the promises of God will shape our faith. I think that's the truth. I think too often that we, we wait for life circumstances to shape our faith and for us to act and respond. But I want to pray that you will lean on the promises of God and allow that to shape your faith. And realize that when circumstances come, you will draw strength from that. You will draw encouragement from that. You will be stronger as a church that you will be able to lead each other and grow with each other to look more like Christ. And so over these four to five weeks leading into Christmas, I I pray that I have impressed upon you these truths. I pray that you really lean into God's hope, that he is our salvation, that he is our rock, that, that we have peace with God, that he has made peace for our sins, and that he loved us before anyone else has loved us. And that he gives us a joy, an unexpressible joy for all of eternity when we know that Christ is our hope. And so this morning we'll focus our time on waiting. And what does that look like? And why do we wait? Why is that important? I think it's important for us to understand what it looks like to wait for the Lord. And no better place in all of Scripture, I think, and especially in the New Testament, than in Matthew chapter 24. And I think when we understand this waiting, I think we can refer back to the definition that the world gives us. The second one, it says, remain in readiness for some purpose. 
I think that's what we do as Christians. I think that's what Christ is trying to teach us in Matthew, that we stay ready, that we are people ready and waiting for the arrival of our King and that we're not just sitting back and waiting, but that we are in a state of readiness. And so I want to encourage you more to think through that as we walk through these parables, as we walk through the parables that Jesus has taught us. And so Matthew verse 20, I mean chapter 24, starting in verse 36, we have some points up here, and I, and I normally don't do points, but I did them today. I really, if you have a pen or paper, write them down, write them in the footnotes of your scriptures. There's some great points on what it looks like as we wait for the return of our King and our Lord. And so the first point, as we enter into the first parable, is this, wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be surprised by their master's return. Wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be surprised by their master's return. In verse 36, it says this, But of that day, the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. As for those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so right here, I want you to understand that the argument here isn't that of the days of Noah, that it was so wicked and so evil. That's not the argument. He's not trying to say how wicked and evil it is. He's trying to say how normal it is. This is the argument. Understand here in the parable that it seems so normal that the problem is normality. And that we are all victims of that. That we can feel like, hey, life is good, right? We're eating, drinking, we're being married, we're being happy. Everything seems to be fine in our life. It seems to be as it was intended. And we can get caught up in the normality of life and that we will be surprised by the coming. And so hear his heart here. It's not about the people of Noah being evil. It's that they didn't understand that they were in a state of normality and they were okay with it. They were fine with it. And so in that day, when the, when, the, when the flood came, it says it took them all away. And then in verse 40, I, I want you to understand this. There's two parables that he throws here. When we talk about this, this returning, this surprise, here's two parables, and he just, he's just enlightening what he's trying to say about the normality of Noah's day. He says this, then there will be, in verse 40, then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. And so the men, this was normal. In the morning, two men would get up and they would go work in the field. It was a normal day for them to go and work in the first century. Probably it was father and son or brother and brother. And so they went out to the field to work and then all of a sudden, one was taken. One was taken. It was a sudden thing. It was a surprise. And so this is what I don't want you to get caught up in. I don't want you to get caught up in the taken part of it. We're not trying to figure out who's taken to heaven, who's taken to judgment. We're not, we're not trying to figure out that. That's not what he's trying to describe. I want you to focus instead on the quick separation, that it was sudden, that it was by surprise. And the same thing can be said about women. Look at verse 41. It says, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. In the first century, if you didn't have oxen to help you grind the seed, then what would happen is two women would go put their seed in this grinder and they'd have to pull, one would pull 180, the next one would grab and pull 180, and they would grind the seed. And this was a normal day. And so in the midst of their normality, one is taken. One is taken and one 
is left. And so what we can take away as Christians here is that waiting for the Lord as those who do not wish to be surprised, that we are in a state of readiness, that we're not surprised by the coming, the quick coming of our Lord and Savior. And so point two is this, wait for the Lord Jesus as stewards who give an account for the service, faithful or otherwise. Wait for the Lord Jesus as stewards who must give an account for service, faithful or otherwise. And so here's a side note here, and I want you to understand, these parables are not four separate parables. They're all one, and what they do is they build upon each other. And so you'll see as we read through these, note that as we read through these, you'll see these points that that those who are surprised that he's going to build on this throughout the next four parables. And so what he says here, wait for the Lord Jesus, stewards who must give an account for their service, either faithful or, serv- or, or faithful or otherwise. And so if you are giving service, then guess what? You're ready. You're ready. You won't be surprised. And so verse 45, it says this, who then is faithful and sensible slaves whom the master has put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Verse 47, truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if the evil slave says in his heart, master is not coming for a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of the slave will come on a day when he is not expecting him, and an hour which he does not know. And he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites and in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So do you hear the heart? Do you hear the heart of Jesus as he says, be ready, be ready. Don't be surprised. Be in a state of readiness so that when I come, you can be accountable to what you have done, either faithful or otherwise. And we see in the first part of this parable that the servant was faithful, that he put one in charge who was faithful to do. But then in verse 50, verse 48, the evil slave says this, look, I've got plenty of time. I've got time to do what I want. The Lord's not coming for a long time or the master's not coming for a long time. So I'm able to do as I please. And I take advantage of that. He started beating his slaves. He took advantage of what God has given him to entrust him with or his master has entrusted him with, and he used it for his own benefit. He used it for himself. And a slave slave has no right to do that. And so in that, in verse 50, it says, it says the master of the slave will come on a day when what? When he does not expect him, that he will be surprised. And then in that, he will be accountable and in that, it will be, he will be cut into pieces and assigned to a place with the hypocrites and a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we must be ready. We must be a people who are ready for the coming of Christ. That every day we wake up and anticipating his coming. That we are in a state of readiness. That we want to serve and love the Lord. And not fall back into normality where we, end ta- where we end up taking advantage of what God has entrusted us with. And we try to use it for our own benefit and not for his glory. And so be ready. Be ready. And then point three says this. Wait for the Lord Jesus as those who know the master's coming may be long delayed. And in chapter 25, you'll turn over verse one. We're moving into... 
the parable of the ten virgins. And uh, just to give you a little background on this, when you think of the first century wedding, it looked a lot different than it looks today. It wasn't so much about the bride. You know, in the paper when they write up about the bride and all this cool stuff about her dress and the wedding and all this, and at the very end they'd mention the, the groom, right? Like, and she's marrying this guy, right? <laughs> so it was opposite in the first century. It was more about the groom. And so in this, to give you a background on the settings, is that they would go, the groom would go to the bride's home, and he would celebrate with the family. And there was no time on this. It didn't matter how long. And so in this waiting, in this long delay, the people would go and, and parade in the streets and wait for the groom, wait for the groom to come along so they could follow him to the reception, what we would call the reception today, and celebrate with the bride and the groom. And so in their waiting, this is the story. This is where we pick up. It says in verse 1, it says, In the kingdom of heaven will be compared to the ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent or wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in a flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and, and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will be not enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourself. <clears throat> and while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the doors were shut. Later the other virgins came, uh, also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on alert then. For you do not know the day nor the hour. And so a few things here. Verse 5, it says, while the bridegroom was delaying, this is the idea that we don't know that it could be a long delay. It could be short or it could be long. And so in that, we must be prepared. We must be prepared. There were five that weren't and there were five that were. And it says, but, verse 6, it says, but at midnight there was a shout. And all those who rose and trimmed their lamps, but the foolish ones could not. They didn't prepare. They didn't bring the oil. And so the focus is, is that we need to be prepared for the coming of Christ so that we can enter in to the reception, enter in to the greatest reception of all, the greatest wedding feast of all. And then in verse 10 it says, and they were going away to make a purchase, and the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, here it is, those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And so we must be ready. For verse 13 says so clearly to us, be on alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. See how we're building on from the first parable? We don't know. It's going to be a surprise. We don't know the day or the hour, but we have a responsibility to be ready. We have a responsibility to be ready with the giftings and talents that God has given us to serve him knowing that it could be long delayed. It could be long delayed. So what are we doing in our waiting? Are we being responsible to the giftings and the talents that God has given us? And then in verse 14, we see the last parable. And the and the fourth, fourth point is this. It says, wait for the Lord Jesus as slaves commissioned 
to improve the master's assets. Wait for the Lord Jesus as slaves commissioned to improve their master's assets. And so there's a couple of cultural contexts that we need to walk through real quick, but I want to read the scripture. We'll come back, walk through those cultural uh, contexts, and then we'll finish and wrap up. And so first it says this in verse 14. It says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, another two, and another one, each according to his own abilities. And he went on this journey. Immediately the one who had received five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away, and he dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled the account with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you've entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained a five more. Master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into my joy. Enter into the joy of the master. Also, the one who had received two talents came and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the one who had received one talent came and said, Master, I know you, have, you are a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seeds. I was fearful, I was afraid, and went away and hid your talents in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But the master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy servant, you, have that I reap where, you know that I reap where I did not sow and gathered where I scattered no seeds. Then you ought to put my money in a bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who had the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have abundance. But for the one who does not have, even what he does not, what he does have shall be taken away, thrown out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the two cultural contexts here, one is the talent. You may in your scripture see the word talent or gold. And this idea is that it was the measure or the weight of silver or gold. And so when he gave them a talent, like five talents wasn't like five dollars. For us, that was a lot of money. It was millions of dollars. We could break it down and figure it all out. But it was millions of dollars that he entrusted these slaves with. It was enough for them to go out and work and to have an investment and to, to show a return on it. And so he gave them plenty. The second cultural context is slave. What we have to understand about a slave is a much different picture than what we've seen as Americans. And the idea is that we, slaves, slaves is one owned by his master because he wasn't able to pay a debt. So he is owned by the master. It's a different than a servant. A servant can take his service somewhere else. So a servant, if I came to you and I said, I want to serve you, then I can serve you as long as I want. But if I got upset with you, then I could take my talent somewhere else and go work with someone and do the same thing I'm doing. But a slave owes his master obedience. He has no choice. His master paid his debt. And because he paid his debt, he is owed. He is owed his life. And so understanding this 
Look at verse 14, and we're going to walk through this. It says, for it, is the Lord, for it is, this is the Lord's return, just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to the other one. Listen to this. He says, each according to his own ability. You hear that, church? He's given to you according to your own ability. Your father knows you. He's personal. He knows what you can handle. He knows it. He says it later, and Scripture says that he gives us faith. He gives to each of us a faith that we can be accountable for. It's a measure of faith. And they each look different, but they're each important. And so he says that he did to each according to his own ability, and then he went on his journey. The master left, entrusting us and entrusting his slaves with his things, his possessions, knowing that they could handle it. And immediately the one who had the five talents in verse 16, he traded them and gained five more. In the same manner, the one that had two received two talents and gained two more. But the one, oh, but the one who had one talent went away, dug a hole, and buried it in the ground. And then listen to this. It says, now after, verse 19, it says, now after a long time, here's that delay, that long time, that surprise, after a long time, the master of the slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received five talents came and brought five more, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Now listen to this line. He says, You were faithful with a few things. Few things, right? Like millions, right? We're thinking, few things. This guy gave him five talents. This is millions of dollars. He says, You were entrusted with few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Many things. Much more than all the weight of gold that I've given you. I'm going to put you in charge of much more. And he says, enter into the joy of your master. Wow. He's going to put us, those who are responsible, he's going to put us in charge of much more, of much more in heaven. And so when we think of heaven, don't think of the world's view of heaven, a guy in a long robe sitting on a cloud playing a harp, right? That's, that's not what heaven is. That's not what heaven's about. It says right here, it says that I will put you in charge of many things that in heaven, in his master's place, we will have many things that we're in charge of because of our faithfulness. It's not the endless church service in the sky, right? That there will be things that we do and learn and be a part of. And so don't remove that picture that the world has put on heaven. Heaven is much greater, much greater than a harp. In verse 22, it says, Also the one who received two talents came and said, Master, you've entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. And his master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful to a few things, and I will put you in charge with many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And so he says the same thing to the one who was entrusted with five and to the one who was trusted in two. Why? Because it didn't matter how much. It was about their faithfulness, about their obedience. It was about their responsibility to improve their master's assets. And so your measure of faith that is given to you is is given to you. Be responsible to it. And then the one who received one talent, verse 24, came up and said, Master, I know that you are a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seeds. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. And you said, see, you have what is yours. And so 
problem with this guy is that he was selfishly thinking. In his mind, he was thinking, if I risk it all, if I risk all that, that my master has given me and I lose it, then I'm in trouble. I'm responsible. But if I do risk it and I gain and I double my profit, what do I get in return? He gets it all. There's no benefit to me whether I grow his money or not. And so in his selfish thinking, he went and buried it. He put it in the ground, and when the Lord returned, or when the master returns, he says, here, see, this is yours. Have it back. And that's a selfish way of thinking, especially in the context when we understand what a slave is. That we owe our master, that he paid our debt in full. And because he paid our debt, we have a responsibility to him in our life and to our death. And so he was selfish. And because of this, he was judged by his own standard. And then verse 26, it says, But Master answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy slave. You know that where you reap, I do not sow, and I gather where I scatter no seeds. Then you ought to have put my money, you have at least put my money in the bank where I could have gained the interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has, much shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have still be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so are we being responsible? Are we being responsible to the point that we want to improve our master's assets? We know that it could be a long delay. We don't want to be surprised. We want to be in a state of readiness to serve God until he comes again. And in that state of readiness, are we being responsible to what he has given us to improve it, to improve his assets? Or are we holding in? Are we being selfish? And so the application here is that the kingdom is coming, so get on with the responsibilities that was given to us. We must get on with those responsibilities. We must not hold them in. Because slaves or followers joyfully recognize their status. You know why they joyfully recognize their status? Because they realize they've been saved from that debt. They realize that they owe him everything, that they owe him their life, and that is joy. There should be a joy in our waiting, knowing that our master has saved us. And in that, it's a privilege to serve Jesus. And so they understand, slaves understand that they owe Jesus everything. And so we are either slaves to Jesus or we are slaves to ourselves. It's one or two. There's nothing in between. Are we serving our master, Christ Jesus, or are we serving self? Are we trying to improve our own assets so that the world looks at me and says, look at him, look how well he's done? Or are we trying to improve our master's assets because we owe him everything? So our task as we wait is this, is to improve our master's assets and not our own. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And so I pray that we 
are a people that are truly waiting for the Lord, that we are in a state of readiness, that we are ready to serve our neighbors, serve our families, that we are ready to serve our co-workers, that we are ready, most importantly, to serve our master to whom we owe everything, that our debt has been paid, that we have been saved, that we have life. And so I pray this morning that God will convict your heart to where you're serving self, and that you will start to serve our master, a master to whom we owe everything, even our life and salvation. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for these parables that you have reminded us that in our waiting it is so much more than just sitting back and staring off into the clouds and waiting for your return. That we are a people, that we are a church, a body of believers, members, that you have entrusted to us a responsibility to wait, to be ready for your return. And Father, I, I pray that we take what you have given and that we long to improve your assets, that we long to multiply the gifting and talents that you've given us and serve this world in a way that brings you glory, a way that puts your name on display and not our own, that they see that when they look at us that we are owned by a master who loves us, who paid our debt, and has forgiven us of all our sins. So Father, in our waiting, I pray that we continue to seek your word. Seek your word in a way that grows our hearts to want to love and serve you more and more every day. Thank you, Father for this great responsibility and privilege. Thank you for paying our debt and saving us for all eternity. Father, we love you. It's in your son's precious name we pray.